0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Nevermind the Bar Chart with myself, Mark Pack, and my co-host Stephen Tool. Now there are fourteen or possibly fifteen Liberal Democrat MPs, depending on how you count, whether or not you include Stephen Lloyd course, in the yes, total. Um, Lloyd. Two more than last time we recorded. Yeah, this a is cause a rate and of, effect. It exactly. Is this is effect. a rate of progress that I, I quite like. Um <laughs> I guess we should just mention the slightly odd situation for Stephen because if people don't follow politics closely, they might be thinking how, how are Mark and Stephen not able to count the number of Liberal Democrat MPs correctly. So Stephen Lloyd, Liberal Democrat MP for Eastbourne at the 2017 general election. He made a pledge that although he's a Remainer himself, he would vote for Theresa May's deal and he felt that was incompatible with still taking the Lib Dem whip in the House of Commons. So a few months ago, he resigned the party whip I think that was actually a slightly generous act on his part because otherwise the party might have had the problem of having to take the whip away from him. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a slight case of maybe perhaps jumping before he was pushed, but in a way that I think reflects well on him. Was it not, I mean I always assumed it
1: must have been semi-agreed between um, Alistair Carmichael, the Lib Dem Mm. chief whip and Stephen Lloyd that having any kind of split in the ranks, even if it was just one lone Lib Dem MP for reasons that are explainable it would still be a bad exactly. look for the
0: party to yeah. I, I think on the one issue yeah, that it's, I, I, it's meant to be it, entirely united on. I, I think it was a, a good move all round. He is still a member of the party. Mm-hmm. The party has not commenced selecting a candidate in his constituency. So the Assembly says that he will whether He will yeah. re- regain the Liberal Democrat with at some point. But anyway, 14 or 15 MPs, uh, Jane Dodds and Sarah Wollaston being the two new MPs, uh, both female MPs as well, mm-hmm. which is another welcome step in terms of improving the party's diversity. Also, I think it's probably quite easy for people outside Parliament to underestimate just how important having another two bodies is, because there's a lot of basic parliamentary activity that needs covering by a parliamentary party, regardless of its size. Mm. To have an extra two people to share some of that workload around is actually quite a big boost. And, uh, of course, um,
1: Chucka Munna has taken on the economics mm. and mm. business uh, brief for the party as well, hasn't he? So a uh, less recent... Uh, defection, yeah, indeed, but um, is, is but your fully point stuck of that, in. You know, in effect, that's a twenty percent increase mm. in the parliamentary party in the last three months. Yes,
0: and indeed, I, I actually got an email from somebody the other day complaining about how often Chucker was on the media, <laughs> uh, which I, was a, a novel <laughs> not, not experience. from Chukka, I'm <laughs> no, guessing. No, it was a novel experience for a Liberal Democrat to be complaining about how much the Liberal Democrats <laughs> are in the media. Um, Shall we talk about Jane Dodd's victory in Brecon and Rutledge first, because
1: it's the first Lib Dem by election victory? Directly from the Conservatives since. Oh, you're doing one of your, your
0: your cunning little caveats, aren't you? Here, I,
1: I am. Uh, yes, so Mark is trying to draw my attention and your attention, listener, to the fact that uh, the Lib Dems did, of course, win the Richmond Park mm. by-election in 2016. But that was Zach Goldsmith resigning from the Conservative Party briefly <laughs> in order to uh, uh, make good on his election yeah. pledge uh, over uh, fighting Heathrow, mm. and. Uh, So, technically, Sarah Olney uh, won the Richmond Park by-election against an independent candidate. So, technically, this is the first uh, Lib Dem by-election gain from a Conservative uh, since 2000, Sandra Gidley in Romsey. So, uh, I guess, uh, quite uh, an important boost there. The fact that there has been now this Sarah Wollaston uh, defection as well uh, is... I suppose a Philip in particular for those Lib Dems in Conservative-facing seats. Yes.
0: I am, as an aside, looking forward to the next Liberal Democrat by-election victory because <laughs> I think you will therefore be able to exclude Brecon and Radnisha as well in a similarly convoluted way because Jane herself used to be a council candidate stood for council in Richmond in London. So the next Lib Dem game from the Tories will be the first... Uh, from the Tories, that doesn't involve Richmond in any way. So, yeah, I I think you're going to be able to stretch this. It's the first ever for a very long time. Yeah, absolutely. Let's make the record books bounce.
1: And it it was interesting, I guess, because it partly follows on uh, from what we were talking about last time in terms of the potential importance of a Remain alliance. Uh, mm. For the Liberal Democrats being uh, important, in fact, not just for the Liberal Democrats, but potentially for other parties involved in it as well, because the margin of victory—I mean, I mean, it was a healthy enough, it was a healthy swing um, away from the Conservatives, but it was a narrow-ish majority, fifteen hundred or so majority, one thousand four hundred and twenty-five. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Wikipedia over there. Sorry, Doctor Wikipedia <laughs> over there. Uh, so it was—it uh, was narrow, and of course, the margin of defeat for the Conservatives was. Uh, smaller than the Brexit Party vote, mm. uh, which from a Conservative Party point of view uh, gives hope because it suggests if they can mm. continue to squeeze the Brexit Party, then they can continue in a first-past-the-post system to uh, take seats like Brecon and Radnor Scheer by just edging out the Liberal Democrats. But if the Greens and Plaid had stood... Then who knows? But it's plausible that the Lib Dems would not uh, gain seats. Yeah, it's only
0: been closer. Yeah, anyway. it would, I would. It definitely would have been closer. If you look at the 2017 general election, there was no green candidate, and got three percent of the vote. Uh, if you take three percent off the Liberal Democrat vote share this time, uh, Jane Dodds would still have won. Okay, okay. Just, but it would have been. It would have been uh, a but, very narrow. Exactly. And I think there is a broader point, which is, I think mean, the more I think about this, and we touched on this a little bit in a previous episode, but the more I think about this, the more important I think it is which is the benefit of doing a deal is not just the votes that you hope will transfer. It's also the broader, almost branding of the fact that it's happening. Yeah. So what we saw in Brecon and Radnisshire was not only green and politicians saying vote Lib Dem and uh, former Change UK stroke independent MPs out campaigning as well for, for Jane Dodds. In terms of that sense of being a broader political movement and being able to appeal across... Uh, traditional political dividing lines and you know politicians in different parties or of no party cooperating with each other there's a whole load of very yeah. positive knock-on benefits yeah. that you get from that which well, in this case the Lib Dems were the beneficiaries of obviously other candidates uh, you know who might who might stand who are non-Lib Dems might benefit from that if there is yeah. some sort of unite to remain arrangement. And there is a,
1: there's that curious paradox in British politics isn't mm-hmm. it that the uh, the public, the voters will all say they don't like petty partisan mm. Um, mm. politicking and rivalry up until the point where that actually turns into any kind of coalition attempt <laughs> to trade off policies between two parties that fundamentally disagree, as the Lib Dems discovered to their extreme cost in mm. the coalition. So there is that uh, odd paradox of
0: we yeah. want you to unite, but just not too much so that we can't tell what it is between it's you. We want everyone to work across party lines as long as they end up agreeing with my party. Exactly. It's a bit like the old joke about people who are uh, in favour of controls on parking uh, except outside their own house, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, kind that of like, said, I think there is as, as you say, I think both on both sides of the political spectrum, you can look at the Brecon and Orange result and think being able to coalesce support behind the right lead candidate, whether that's through formal arrangements or through tactical voting and so on you know, that that case has been strengthened on both sides, and we're likely to see, for the on the Liberal Democrats, that's more likely to involve uh, talks, you know, continuing talks with with others like Greens and Plaid, uh, and um, the remnants of Change UK, Stroke mm-hmm. the Independent Group. Um, I think it seems pretty unlikely that will extend as far as Labour. Yeah. But I guess one thing it may do, and this will bring us on I think, to Sarah Wollaston in a moment, is it may help encourage either Labour or Conservative MPs to break the whip to vote for a more hardline remain position in any crunch votes coming up um, in September October time. Because I think if part of your calculation is that I want Britain to stay in the EU, I therefore need to vote the following way this evening... And am I going to get you know kicked out of my party and deselected as a result, if there is a possibility of therefore standing as an independent with the unite to remain label behind you and quite possibly some financial resourcing as well and some volunteer resources that flows from that then that yeah. you know where it's where it's a very close judgment for people as to which way they're going to go that may help tip some people
1: yeah uh, i'm 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 just shocked at the fact that you're the first person to use the b word of brexit in this podcast as. Early listeners will remember Mark was um, allergic uh, initially to uh, to us uh, discussing the topic
0: at all. It's perhaps a good thing we didn't go for the uh, some of the names that we played around with, such as everything but Brexit. I <laughs> mean, a <laughs> spectacularly misnamed yes. podcast.
1: Yeah. Um, the other thing I wanted to uh, pick up on on the Brecon and Radnorshire yeah. uh, by election was uh, it was actually something that you retweeted from Joe Twyman, um, formerly a YouGov pollster who noted that um, compared to Breckin and Radnorshire, there are currently...
0: <laughs> I feel, given that he is still a pollster, but now for a new firm that he's created, I feel in fairness we should mention he now works for Delta Pol. Oh, OK, I just didn't think... Yeah. I hadn't heard of it. So apologies, <laughs> Joe. Um, it will
1: be a fantastic success and uh, soon bigger than you, Gov. Uh, he wrote, compared <laughs> to Breckin and Radnorshire, there are currently 45 constituencies held by Conservative MPs that are, one, less mm. safe, and two, have higher proportions estimated to have voted Remain. And I guess that was interesting. Uh, I found that interesting for two reasons. One was um, that uh, it highlights something we touched on in the last podcast again about the number of Conservative-facing seats that the Liberal Democrats um, are likely to be targeting Mm. at the next election and therefore what implications that has more broadly for the party, its policies and uh, Mm. how it faces, uh, how it presents itself. Um, But secondly, actually it was a slightly lower number than I was expecting. Uh, And perhaps that's uh, that's my naivety, not having looked at the figures in a while. But I mean, forty-five therefore suggests that outside of by-election times, um, which um, you know tend to inflate swings against the governing party, forty-five does that mean that's sort of what you'd expect to be the upper limit of uh, number of Lib Dem targets from conservative-facing seats that there might be? Or is it that actually there are a number of uh, other seats that are more leave, uh, you know, voted leave more heavily than Brecon and Radnorshire, but nonetheless have good Lib Dem uh, credentials in terms of past support and strong bases and so on? Or, you know, what does this imply in terms of Lib Dem targeting and the the ceiling and the floor on what the Lib Dems might be able yeah, to expect I at a, think, a forthcoming um, election.
0: I mean, part of my reason for retweeting it was it was quite an interesting number for the sort of reasons you've touched on. Although I think on reflection, probably if I were to see the tweet now, I'm not sure I would retweet it, or at least I might retweet it with a comment added, because one of the things that is pointing in a much more optimistic direction, and therefore you're looking at a much larger number of, of plausible seats for the Liberal Democrats, is that the distribution of the growth in Liberal Democrat support since 2017 is not even across the country. It's mm-hmm. very demographically skewed towards Remainers, etc. But what that means is you therefore have seats which are not where nominally, which is nominally where in reality the Liberal Democrats were much further behind in 2017. But because they're much heavily Remainer, there's been a much bigger increase in Liberal Democrat support. Mm-hmm. So another way of looking at it, which gets you a much, much bigger number, is if you look at the sort of... um. Uh, sort of large-scale polling that's been done that gets gets more into the sort of how different party support is varied around, amongst different demographic group, groups, different voter clans, etc. How does that sort of pan out when you look across constituencies? It looks like you're, you're deep into three figures for the number of plausible right. constituencies. And so that's one of the big dilemmas for the Liberal Democrats at the moment, which I touched on a little bit in the last edition of my Liberal Democrat Newswire. Newsletter you do an email to, newsletter, Mark. I do. I, oh, do, send, okay. I do send the occasional you email. I you should mention, mention it. I should mention it. I sort of you know, write the email newsletters in between writing books, you see. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, one of the things I mentioned there was there is a potential risk of repeating what went wrong for the party in the 2010 mm-hmm. general election, uh, which saw a quick recap, first televised debate between UK-wide political party leaders... In a, in a general election, Nick Clegg did amazingly well in the first TV debate, soared from being mostly unknown to more popular than Winston Churchill mm-hmm. almost overnight. Um, and as a result, the Democrats got terribly excited about all these different seats they could win. The rigorous focus of the party's targeting operation dissipated, therefore, with yeah. people, for example, not being as willing to travel to target seats. So they're getting excited about their own seat, the party itself, putting in money across a wide range of seats and so on. And then it all went wrong and the party actually lost seats at that election. In hindsight, sticking to a much more rigorous targeting process, a less ambitious one would have resulted in a better election And I remember there
1: was was an expectations issue there as well, wasn't there? Because Mm. uh, I remember Michael Crick, who was then uh, BBC Two Newsnight's political editor, doing a piece where he went to one of the Liberal Democrat seats that wasn't being targeted. I think it was on the south coast somewhere, but which polls... Uh, at the time was suggesting mm. it would be in play yeah. if the Clegg surge uh, were to materialize and he was saying look the liberal democrats aren't doing anything here how on earth can this mm. be look you know you've got yeah. polls showing that you can um, potentially form the next government why on earth are liberal democrats being so mm. unambitious so there was that sense of uh, uh, expectation on the media mm. putting pressure probably mischievously certainly in michael crick's case to uh, almost mm. <laughs> distract the liberal democrats into that much more uh, wider dispersal of resources, which, as we know, can often be fatal for a party under first-past-the-post. Yeah, post.
0: And, but I think a lot of it was driven by members, as it were, voluntarily changing yeah. their minds about yeah. where they would help. And Justin Fisher, an academic who does a really good piece of research with colleagues at every general election, uh, doing a survey of, for example, election agents, um, that produces some really nice insight into how much activity really happens in different seats, and one of his conclusions from 2010 was that that shift of voluntary resources mm-hmm. towards a small number of target seats, which had been a big Lib Dem competitive advantage in previous general elections, didn't really happen in 2010, yeah. or at least happened on a much, much smaller scale. and therefore, So there's, that's definitely a risk. Yeah. Now, having said that, I mean, you could say, particularly given what's at stake with Brexit, do you play safe to hope to gain 10... Or do you gamble to try to gain a yeah. hundred in the risk you lose five? Yeah, I think if you were to put it like that, a lot of people would go for the gamble. being. and there
1: is and there's a point as well that's been made. Um, I think it was Stephen Bush of the New Statesman. Uh, sorry, we shout him out every time here, but he's very good. Uh, made the point that if it's not now for the Liberal Democrats, uh, when is it? Because you have the Conservative Party embarking on this uh, suicidal. Um, policy uh, with a um, a leader who's enjoying a bounce in the polls, but nonetheless is very Marmite in terms of his uh, attractiveness to the electorate. You have the Labour Party, led by Jeremy Corbyn, uh, who is increasingly, I think, looking a tired figure and certainly is an even more divisive figure, perhaps, uh, simply because he's been longer in the post. So you've got uh, an unelectable opposition and uh, a government that's trying to become unelectable to large parts of its natural uh, voter base. So if it isn't going to be this coming election for the Liberal Democrats, can you hope for a more propitious set of circumstances than the ones that are currently the case? So if you're going to go all in mm. on an election,
0: why not make it this one? Yeah, I, I, I think the answer to that in part is because... Let's imagine there is a general election in which maybe Liberal Democrats do moderately well, but there ends up being a Conservative government and Brexit goes ahead, which is quite a plausible yep. combination of circumstances. Uh, you look at the sorts of contests that are up next year. Things like the mayor- London Mayor election, another round of local elections. There's a lot of, and you know, a, a an unpopular right-wing conservative government. Let's you know remember Boris Johnson' initial honeymoon is a remarkably wind-swept, yeah, yeah. dreary, argument-filled, brief holiday at a seaside resort that I won't name for risk of offending people. From there, but you know, it's there, there's a, there's an awful lot that that even if Brexit goes through, is likely to go wrong for the government yeah. over the next few years. And in that sense, we might be back to the the sorts of uh, politics of the, the 1990s of an unpopular Conservative government and an awful lot of opportunity for Liberal Democrats to prosper in that way. Yeah. So part of the reason to not go all in, at least from a financial point of view, is all of those other opportunities for continued growth and momentum that there are likely to be beyond this mm-hmm. general election. Uh, But that said, you're absolutely right in the broader point that this is a fantastic opportunity. And if you are taking that question about do we gamble on trying to win more seats or do we play safe, that gamble looks better the bigger the potential number. If you go, you know, the bigger the go big option is and this will be... Very, very, you know, this will be a very, very tempting gamble, yeah. So, this brings us to the point about
1: actually, we haven't talked about Sarah Wollaston. No, indeed, we? We, <laughs> Sarah Wollaston was item number one on our agenda, yep. listeners. So, we finally got there, um, 15 minutes or more, uh,
0: into the 17 podcast. minutes 57, I believe. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, so, um, Sarah Wollaston has Hooray! joined the uh, liberal democrats, uh, and uh, uh, I guess a kind of uh, semi controversial in that, um, you know, she's uh, a defector who has previously said that they would honor the uh, 2016 um, referendum mm. result uh, now in her statement um, that she put out yesterday in a video and so on she said look things have changed mm. a lot in the last couple of years and it's clear that uh, the idea of a constructive positive exit from the mm. European Union is uh, a diminishing possibility so that changes my uh, calculations and calibrations about uh, where I go Uh, I guess it's also controversial because she has, I saw this from um, Douglas Carswell yesterday, previously um, sponsored a bill that said that any uh, MP who did defect from one party to another should be mandated to call a by-election in those circumstances, and it seems unlikely that she herself is going to trigger a by-election. So there are sort of controversies around...
0: her. Yeah, I mean, the the by-election thing is... And to be fair to Douglas Carswell, him aside, is one of the most reliable causes of the outbreak of political hypocrisy all round. That, you know, people, when somebody leaves their own party or yeah. leaves their own side of the political spectrum um, for the other, people get absolutely anger and outraged about how appalling and dreadful and awful it is. And then when the same happens, reverse fall completely silent. Yeah. Douglas Carswell, to his credit, is, and this is partly, I think, why the rules have never been changed is just about the only person you can point to who is consistent in thinking on all sides and indeed in his own mm. case included that you should have a by-election. Yeah. It's one of the reasons why actually I, I don't have, you know, I don't get worked up about it either way, partly because I think you should be consistent and actually I think there are some advantages in making it easier for people to leave their own party uh, because if you had, a let's say, the rule where you have to you know quit, quit your seat, trigger a by-election... What would happen? Well, you would either have to say, you know, either people would therefore say, well, actually, okay, I'm going to be independent in all but name, but I'm technically not going to leave my party, Mm -hmm. and then the party who you know who you're continually rebelling against, but yet and never having left them, will say kick you out. But if that triggers a by-election then that's giving enormous power to party whips. If they can force you to stand for re-election by kicking out the party, that would massively centralise political power, make it very authoritarian. So you'd have to say, well, actually, no, if you get kicked out by your party, that doesn't trigger a by-election. And you would then end up with this weird limbo land where somebody would say, well... I'm not leaving the Conservatives, but I'm going to vote with the Liberal Democrats and I will be asking to stand as a Liberal Democrat candidate at the next election. And then everyone would be saying, well, isn't this bloody daft? Why yeah. on earth do we have this this sort of shadow imaginary world where people leave but they don't really leave? Um, so, you know, I, 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 I can understand the frustration that somebody has if, say, they've voted for an MP and, you know, they're a passionate supporter of that party's, that person's party and that person has then switched. But, I do think there's massive amounts of hypocrisy all around. Also, frankly, we will almost certainly have a general election before yeah, Christmas. Yeah, yeah. You know, voters in her constituency will get a chance to cast a yeah. verdict on her pretty soon.
1: Yeah. So, uh, what implications does this have, if any, for the Liberal Democrats? What do you think? Well,
0: before we answer that question, oh. we're going to pause for a novel thing wow. that has never happened before on this podcast. Hello and welcome to the first advert on Nevermind the Bar Charts, which is also, well, really an advert for ourselves because Stephen and I are taking part in the podcast live politics event in London on Saturday the 5th of October near Euston Station. We will be recording a special live episode of this podcast and also through the day lots of other political podcasts will be recording their own shows too you can buy tickets at podcastlive.com that's podcastlive.com either to see just Stephen and I record our show or a whole day pass that lets you dip in and out and listen to and see lots of other shows being recorded amongst the other shows that there are on the day are, uh, for example, polling politics, one of my favourite political podcasts around at the moment, which features Marie LeConte and Joe Twyman. Quite often it features Marie laughing uproariously at Joe, and frankly, Joe deserves to be laughed at quite often. Um, also features For the Many, uh, which which has LBC presenter Ian Dale and former Labour Home Secretary Jackie Smith. Quite the combo from different points on the political spectrum there, but makes for a great discussion, really interesting podcast. Um Amongst the other ones I'm quite actually hoping I'll be able to just dip in to listen to a little bit of The Week Unwrapped which comes from The Week magazine which I'm a huge fan of, read it every week, struggle with the really difficult Sudoku every few weeks uh, in there and not actually really come across their podcast before so hoping, hoping I'll get a chance to sample a little bit of that and discover if I've been missing out on a brilliant podcast there too. Anyway, lots of different podcasts available. Find all the details at podcastlive.com and you can buy tickets online there as well. Really hope many of our listeners will be able to make it. It'd be lovely to see you in person and we're hoping we'll also be able to take questions from the audience so you may even end up with your voice featuring on a future episode of this show. Podcastlive.com, Saturday the 5th of October. And we're back. So tell me what happened during the break, uh, you're going to have to listen to the show oh, to find I'm out to Stephen to to you're going to have to listen to the show you see I'm just absolutely desperate to pump up our <laughs> we're getting so close to getting a thousand listens oh, wow. on an episode none of them uh, we should actually produce a bar chart of our most popular episodes which never, one is going to reach a thousand first anyway and yeah. um, to one of the broader questions that I think Sarah Williston's decision to join the little Touches on and may become a more pertinent and a tougher question for any future changes of party from other MPs is how forgiving should we be about the political past of people who wish to join the Liberal Democrats? Hmm. Yeah. And there was quite an interest, just purely by chance, I came across. As ever, Winston Churchill has an apposite quote for almost everything. As, just At as least attributed to him, yes. whether he said it or not. <laughs> well, this one I found in one of his books. So, okay, fair enough. So even if, even if yeah. one of his writing team may it's have originally legit. penned the words, but also I think it, I think he also said this in the House of Commons, although I didn't actually check it in Hansard. So Winston Churchill, when he became Prime Minister uh, near the start of the Second World War, um, he was replacing a Conservative Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, and a Conservative government that had been that was seen widely as not only having failed badly in the initial conduct of the Second World War, but having in part been responsible for really bad mistakes in appeasing Hitler in the years mm-hmm. previous to the Second World War. And so there was a lot of criticism for a lot of senior figures in the Tory party, who nonetheless Winston Churchill actually retained in his government. Now partly there was some political, sort of real politic behind uh, behind, you know, why he needed to have a sufficient breadth of support in the Commons. Mm-hmm. But Churchill being Churchill, as well as a bit of real politic, he also came up with a wonderfully phrased uh, argument based on principle, um, where he talked about if the present tries to sit in judgment on the past, it will lose the future. Uh. Uh, as in, uh, you know, the point he was making then was look, if we wipe out all of the people from Parliament who have made mistakes in the 1930s in terms of attitudes and policy towards Hitler. We will just have no no talent left, not enough people left, not enough numbers to form a government. And you know, there's a point at which you have to leave recriminations of the past behind.
1: You mean he wasn't uh, refuting a century in advance all the arguments about whether or not um, Churchill was an imperialist um, warmonger uh, who should have been arraigned for crimes against humanity, which is one of those Twitter um, that is true. Actually. This Twitter debate His, his that comment
0: actually applies. Perhaps you know, It must his, be about time actually for that out. one to
1: break out on Twitter again, as to you know whether Winston Churchill is evil or, or the greatest person who ever lived. So um, uh, he was merely anticipating uh, yeah. the arguments that would rage about himself. I yeah. guess elements of A and B are both acceptable. And of course, it's by the way. Uh, <laughs> an <answer> to that. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, yes. Something slightly more uh, forensic and analytical normally gets you close to the truth. Uh, so yeah. Uh, do you agree? I mean, it's interesting. I suppose that he, I mean the. the our current Prime Minister likes to liken himself to Boris, mm. uh, uh, to Winston, <laughs> sorry, to Winston. Uh, Johnson, uh, yeah. Churchill. I'm going to continue with
0: my, uh, with my surname uh, drive. Uh, always, always give the surname, tall. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, I, I honestly think that Winston is probably, I suppose it was 1984 as well, wasn't mm. it? But anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, he always likes to uh, make, draw the parallels between himself and uh, Winston Churchill and uh, wrote a book to... <laughs> more or less that effect. And yet when it came to his own reshuffle, of course, he didn't, uh, it Mm. seems, look to the future very much. It was looking very much to the immediate present of um, an election. Uh, So uh, he didn't try and reunite the two Mm. sides of the party. There was no attempt to reach out to uh, Remainers. uh, Even people like Penny Mordaunt, who uh, were ardent Brexiters, uh, uh, because they had committed the sin of voting for his leadership rival, were cast out. So I suppose there are different interpretations, aren't there, of how far you extend the largesse when you are a politician in power as to how far uh, you take into account the fact that people have different views. And I suppose the same applies to political parties. How far do you take into account the fact that um, Sarah Wollaston, for example, in her 2010 election pitch, uh, was you know, it, it was a pretty Eurosceptic uh, ticket that she was standing on, uh, do we sort of you know pretend that didn't exist, wipe it out, or do we just accept that things have moved on, the circumstances are very different, and what um, seemed likely in 2010 is what not is
0: not necessarily what seems likely in 2019? Yeah, I think the the Churchill analogy I think maybe helps answer that question because what you know what happened when Churchill became prime minister and then the formation of a coalition government during the Second World War that had you know, the likes of Churchill and Attlee from the Labour Party both serving in that government. Yeah, if you remember, or have read in history books, more realistically perhaps, uh, just how antagonistic the Conservative and Labour general election campaigns were towards each other in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, mm-hmm. yeah, and actually some of the uh, sort of aggressive accusations made make even current British politics look a little bit tame by comparison. Yeah. Is is it, it, you know this wasn't actually politicians who weren't that you know different from each other. Well, most of, famously, there was, there
1: was um, Churchill. Saying that Labour would have to uh, hire a Gestapo uh, in order to uh,
0: enforce its its social affairs policies, and and using you know words like that just after the Second World War had real, you know, really meant something in the way that those sorts of words can get thrown about. His loyal deputy for
1: many years had been Clement Attlee, who was leader of
0: Labour Party. So so you sort of say, well, okay, why did those people have had such massive and passionate disagreements with others? How did that coalition work? And why, in that context, did Churchill's phrase actually neatly capture things? And I think there were two. One was that it was clear that just about everyone who had previously made the mistake, in that sense, over foreign policy towards Hitler, although I guess there's a whole other argument about whether there was a different foreign policy that would have been more successful, but... You know, everyone agreed that whatever we did in the past, we are now fighting, and we need to try. You know, we need to fight to win. That there was a definite sense of yeah, okay, whatever happened, whether it was right or wrong, well intentioned, mistaken, stupid, smart, whatever, we now do all agree on this particular thing. Obviously, there's a little bit of caveat there around some people who were sort of at various times thinking about possible uh, peace deals, but there was that basic shift of yeah, okay, we do all now agree on this one objective. And that objective, everyone also agreed, was the overwhelmingly utter dominant political objective. And I think what is um, similar but not sort of absolutely conclusive is obviously the role of Brexit now that there is an extent to which mm-hmm. as for example Sarah Williston said well look whatever we you know whatever I might have thought two years ago if Theresa May had say negotiated a deal then involved Britain staying in the single market and all those Brexiteers who tell us how desperate it is desperately important it is that we leave Europe and then actually voted in Parliament for Britain to leave Europe mm-hmm. as opposed to repeatedly voting against Britain leaving Europe. Um, you know so, so, so there is that sort of sense of yes circumstances have changed Sort of on the Remain side we can agree that you know, whatever we thought before, yes, we now want Britain to stay in the EU. Is it the completely overwhelmingly dominant issue though? I mean Brexit is clearly massively important, yeah. but it is not quite in the same league as you know, fighting the Second World War, uh, despite some weird That's a controversial nostalgia, That's some a controversial weird view. Brexit, Brexiteer nostalgia on that front. And that's why I think, for example, it's interesting if you look at, say, Philip Lee, one of the MPs mm-hmm. who's often sort of speculated about, uh, you know, will Willie, uh, Willie join the Liberal Democrats? Yeah, you know, you look at his voting record uh, on issues to do with same-sex marriage and the likes. I think, you know, if he were to join, it would certainly be more controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, and there would at least be some Liberal Democrat activists who would say, actually, no, Brexit is massively important. But him agreeing with us on Brexit isn't quite enough. Yeah. There are these other things about his past that would put them off the idea of him joining.
1: Yeah, whereas it's the almost the other way round, I suppose, with someone like Nick Bowles, who uh, is one of the um, more liberal, mm. more, probably the most liberal, uh, conservative, former conservative now. Um, but I think he sits as a, officially as a liberal conservative MP or uh, some form of appellation like that. But he has... uh, he wouldn't depend on Liberal
0: Conservative for change, um, I hope, is his official title. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: He didn't, for example, join Change UK because actually he did believe in delivering Brexit. Mm. Um, It's just that he wanted there to be an uh, EEA-style soft Brexit and that was what he passionately campaigned for and got progressively more annoyed that his colleagues in the Conservative Party, as well as um, opposition parties, wouldn't unite around that sort of... Mm. um, Compromise approach to to Brexit, but on many other issues, uh, he is uh, you know on, he was a good housing minister I think in the coalition. Mm. Uh, he's always advocated a more pluralist kind of politics. He was a he, he was an ex think tanker uh, who was known for being the, the more kind of Cameroon mm. progressive uh, wing of the party. And yet it seems unlikely he would join the Liberal Democrats. So you have got this these kind of two um, figures in Philip Lee. Quite a, um, Or, you know, someone like Dominic Grieve, who are quite traditional conservatives in many ways. Um, they are sort of, you know, yep. men from the shires kind of conservatives. Um, quite dry in their approach to economics, um, pretty cautious in their approach to any kind of social liberalisation, uh, or worse than cautious in uh, perhaps in Philip Lee's case. Uh, and yet you have someone like Nick Bowles who nonetheless feels that there is this impediment of the party mm. not having been willing to make moves uh, on Brexit to facilitate it. Uh, in a way that would have been um, a softer option. So it's, it's a weird kind of conundrum where you have, uh, I suppose, Brexit is just that fulcrum in British politics where you're either on one side or the other at the moment and it dominates everything.
0: Yeah, or you're the Labour Party and balancing oh, well. <laughs> precariously on, on the <laughs> point of the fulcrum. Um,
1: but your point of the, uh, in the last podcast was that, you know, at some point, um, yes, Brexit will be here with us for a long, long mm. time to come in terms of trade negotiations, etc. Whatever happens, whether it's no deal... Uh, I suppose revoke is the only way which gets back to normal, but I Mm. can't uh, see any sort of normalcy uh, re-emerging after revoke. Mm. Uh, So Brexit is here to stay, and yet politics will have to continue in one shape Mm. or another outside of Brexit Mm. as well. And assuming that October 31st is some form of hard deadline Mm. this time, maybe it won't be. Maybe, maybe perhaps, possibly. Indeed, who knows. Um, But at some point... Other policies will actually have to come back into play. Other issues will start being important to people. And that's when, suddenly, believing in Remain isn't in itself enough because you start to see potentially quite important fissures opening up between those people who've come into the party on that one issue mm. and then find themselves uh, actually torn asunder. On the other hand, of course, it's a point you've made, I think, in a previous blog, that um, uh, there are people who, once they are in... Mm the Liberal Democrats.
0: It's point that Alex Wilcox made quite right. well about yeah, his yeah. experience of yeah. working with Bob McLennan who joined you know, Labour to then SDP to yeah, Liberal yeah. Democrats.
1: So that's that sense of being surrounded by the mm. tribe, you actually start to have more sympathy, um, you lose some of the perhaps tribal views you mm. held previously because all your colleagues yeah. um, were also against same-sex mm. marriage or all your party members were and so on and so you just tended to listen, hear those arguments more loudly. And so you become more liberal, in our case, uh, as you join the party and uh, get more immersed into it. That's, I suppose, the optimistic view is that the, uh, those people who do defect into the party part, uh, become more immersed in liberal politics and uh, uh, their views shift, not necessarily change completely, but shift in that direction as well.
0: Given how unusual it is for you to be optimistic about the Liberal Democrats, <laughs> I think we should end this episode <laughs> on that very note with a happy, optimistic Stephen Tall.